Um, so good morning, friends. Wow, welcome today to worship. It is good to be with you. It is good to be with you to, um, to pray. It is good to be with you to hear what God is doing amongst us. It's, it's good to be with you to spend some time in, in silence and to chat and to now get to be in the Word. Um, when Dan and I were in seminary, uh, one of our favorite parks to go to was this huge play structure. It was on the edge of the Rose Bowl and it was designed to look like a ship. Um, not just any old ship, a pirate ship. Hence its nickname, Pirate Park. And it was a really fun park and I would bring the boys there and I would open a book and I would try to get some reading done. And um, yeah, I have a couple pictures of it. I actually tried to find more because it's quite a big park, but I can only find a couple. And apparently last time we were there, the kids were so little. Um, I love this one picture of the two, two boys together. They're at the edge of this boat. It kind of rocks back and forth. I remember this one time that I went there and it was just with Andre, um, our youngest child. And he must have been maybe about, maybe about four years old. And, you know, I, I sent him off running and I cracked open my book and began reading. And about 20 minutes later, he came back and he was just, he was crying so hard, I couldn't hear what he was saying. So, you know, I'm trying to get him to, you know, trying to get him to tell me what's going on. His clothes look rumpled, but there's no blood. Yeah, I don't see blood anywhere. And so I just, I just held him and I asked, where does it hurt? He took a deep breath. It hurts all over, but especially my heart. <laughs> It hurts all over, but especially my heart. It took me a couple more minutes of just listening and to find out that he had, he had slipped and fallen while running. And apparently what hurt the most for him was that he was embarrassed in front of the other kids, <laughs> hence his heart hurting. He was experiencing a little bit of physical pain, but even more so than that, emotional pain. So I was able to listen and hold him while he sort of finished up crying. And after a while, he wanted to go out and play again. And as I was thinking about this story of Andre this week, just realizing we have a lot of opportunities in the world, even at the best of times, you know, at fun times at a park, even at the best of times, we have so many opportunities to bump up against pain, whether it be our own pain or someone else's pain, whether it's visible pain or invisible pain. And that's it, the best of times. In times of crisis, in times of change, in times of shipwreck, we're even more likely to encounter it. Times when it hurts all over, but especially my heart. A few weeks ago, we were led into this current worship series, I've Been Meaning to Ask. And we looked at Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27. And just, we're invited to interpret this present moment in our church and in our larger society as a shipwreck moment, right? The boat or our vessel of normal has broken up. And just as God's healing ministry continued in the life of Paul and Luke, just as God's healing ministry continued after the breakup of their boat, after their vessel didn't survive, um, they were able to survive as they stayed together, as they partnered with God for good. And in the same way, so can we. Uh, the boats we build might not make it, but we can. And God's ministry for good continues. And so after that message, Pat and I were actually talking in staff meeting just about this image of shipwreck and how it reminded us of this TV show called Lost. And it, I think this TV show out was, it was out in like 2004 to 2010, so it was a while ago. 
Um, I remember watching it, and this is before you could like, you know, watch multiple episodes of something. You know, you'd have to wait each week and tune in to see it. And it's uh, this idea, um, I guess the, the premise is that it opens with a plane crash on a beach of a beautiful yet mysterious island. And that beautiful, mysterious island is actually our island because it was filmed locally. <laughs> so this idea that after this, this, this shipwreck, uh, I guess it was a, a, plane, a plane wreck for them, right? After this, um, as the smell of smoke and burning oil was still in the air, their, gra their stories gradually emerged and they asked each other questions. They took care of the wounded. They figured out what they needed and worked to navigate from there. There's this great little clip um, that I want to show you in just a second. It's just a couple minutes long. It just shows them on the beach and wounds coming to light, places of pain coming to light, and how those can be moments of care and emerging story for us in the middle of our shipwrecks, or maybe we'll need to amend it to a plane crash. <laughs> so Pat, if you want to try to pull that up now, we're going to see if we can watch this little clip together. Yeah, as you and I wash up on the beach from our shipwreck of normal, we're going to have wounds. Those look like they hurt. We're gonna have wounds that are easier to see, wounds that are very visible. We're going to have wounds that are a little bit more invisible. And this is gonna be a great time for us to be able to check in with each other and tend to each other. Last week with Exodus 2, we invited each other uh, to ask, what's your story? What's your story? And this week, we're going to be inviting each other to ask the question, where does it hurt? The same question I asked Andre at the park all those years ago. Where does it hurt? We're going to be looking from 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 18. And as you pull it up, either in your, your Bible app or in your, um, if you have a paper Bible with you, um, I just want to acknowledge that last year around this time, we preached a message from this very same passage. Um, I preach a message on the idea of barren prayers. What happens when we wait for God and wait for God to answer us when we pray the same thing again and again in the weight of the unknown. And I invited us to see how many of us actually carry prayers that we've prayed over and over again that haven't seen any results. Prayers of longing that lead us to wonder if we are even heard. One of the main characters in the text we're going to look at um, her name is Hannah, but I'm just going to call her Hannah. I'm going to read it all with my American accent. If I tried to read all of the, the words that are going to be coming up with a Hebrew pronunciation, it would be very confusing. So I'm going to call her Hannah. Her ongoing prayer was that God would give her a child, would make her a parent. She didn't have any children in, in the context of their day. It was um, in the context of her own day. That's an especially painful thing. In the context of her day, it was basically seeing that God um, was not blessing you. There was something, um, uh, God, God had purposely done this. That's kind of how they interpreted it. So she felt really ostracized and judged. And as we looked at the text last year, we saw how her, her barren prayers were actually tied in with the greater longing and greater, lo greater prayers of her people. Prayers for God to lead them out of the terrible situation they were in as a people. Right? There was widespread violence and idolatry and selfishness and exploitation all going on at this time. Right, 
So we saw last year, we saw how God answered Hannah's prayer, Hannah's prayer, and also answered the larger prayers of their people all at the same time. We saw how our smaller suffering is oftentimes linked to our more corporate suffering and how God can weave our healing together. So that's what we looked at last year. And this year, and so I told you that just so we can get some context too, because this year when we look at her story, we're going to be looking at it with slightly different lens. We're going to be looking at, at their story with the lens of seeing um, how to respond to stories of pain as they emerge in us and in our community. For me personally, I remember um, a little over 10 years ago when our son Vincent passed away, we heard lots of, lots of things from well-meaning people, lovely people, who just didn't know what to say or how to be. So this text right here is going to be a really good invitation for us to know how to be with others who are in pain and ourselves as we wash up on the beach and ask each other, where does it hurt? So hopefully by now you've pulled up 1 Samuel chapter 1 in your Bible app or your Bible. And as we get ready to read, um, let me just say that if you um, or someone you love knows what the pain of infertility, miscarriage, or child loss is, I just want to acknowledge that and name that. A lot of Hannah's pain that we're going to see in a second is rooted in her not being seen and in the way that her community treated her in the middle of her pain. So if you or someone in your family is suffering silently right now, please reach out to me, to Pastor Cheryl, Pastor Dan, Robbie, Pastor Yumiko. We can sit with you, cry with you, connect you with additional forms of support. Please know you do not need to suffer alone. That brings us into the word of the Lord, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. There was a certain man from Ramiathan, a Zufite, and I'm going to press play so you can all see. There was a certain man from Ramiathan, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Tuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went out from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Verse 8. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring my heart out to the Lord. Do not take your soul for a, your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Verse 17, Eli answered, 
go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we take a minute and look at three responses to pain that we see in this text, I want to show you this little picture I have from my son. And he has this cookbook that he found at his grandmother's house, his papa's house. It's called Cook This, Not That. <laughs> and basically what it is, is instead of a popular option for food, it will show you a slightly healthier option you can make yourself or buy somewhere else. So apparently instead of eating a Wendy's burger, eat a McDonald's burger and it tells you why. <laughs> he loves his cookbook. and. Um, uh, today's message outline is a little bit inspired by this book because that we see three examples of actually how not to handle pain in the text. So instead of doing this, do this, try this instead. So we're going we're gonna to move through these three things pretty quickly. And um, maybe if someone wants to put them in the chat section, just in case you, you miss filling in the blanks. But the first one, when faced with pain, your own or someone else's, um, here we go. Instead of weaponizing pain, try being vulnerably open to learn more. When faced with pain, your own or someone else's, instead of weaponizing pain, try being vulnerably open to learn more. Now, Penina, she used Hannah's pain and vulnerability to provoke her, verse 6 and 7 says. And that word in the Hebrew could also be used to, to mock or mercilessly tease. So basically, Peninnah was using Hannah's pain as a way to wound her. That's weaponizing pain. Now, it sounds like a really extreme thing. Like, who would do that? But the truth is, people weaponize pain all the time. I mean, sometimes even we do. Our country's public discourse for years has been filled with really mocking ways of talking about each other exploiting any apparent weakness, including pain we can find. I'm not even talking about like random people online. No, this kind of mocking language comes from well-paid news anchors, from commentators, authors, political leaders on all spectrums of political parties. And as a society, we've listened to this, sometimes for hours every day, we've been shaped by it, carried this language into our own discourse. This past week, I heard labels like extremist, and snowflake, and the word idiot used by Christian people I personally know to describe other Christian people I personally know as they share their stories of pain, whether it be their worries about vaccine mandates or their heartbreak at what is happening with Haitian immigrants at the Texas border. Weaponizing pain, it sounds like a really outrageous thing, but it happens every day in our public speech. Sometimes people even weaponize their own pain to use as a sort of trump card or a kind of currency. And when we do this, this is really the opposite of vulnerability. Vulnerability which opens us up to the other, which seeks to learn more, even and perhaps especially when we see things differently, when we disagree. The Apostle Paul actually uses this idea of vulnerability and holds it up as a virtue to describe what he calls the weakness of God in 1 Corinthians 1. This idea that God vulnerably opens God's self to humanity, even to the point of being willing to be hurt in the pursuit of reconciling and healing us 
from sin and evil and everything that ails us. So vulnerability or being open to learn more, vulnerability means also means being open to another, another virtue, and that is the virtue of empathy. Now, empathy, um, some people misconstrue empathy in their mind. Empathy does not mean like fusing with another person or even necessarily agreeing with the person you're empathizing with. And I love this definition of empathy or some discussion of empathy from Brene Brown, who is a social worker, researcher, um, storyteller, and author. And this is the way she puts it. Empathy doesn't require that we have the exact same experiences as the person sharing their story with us. Empathy is connecting with the emotion that someone is experiencing, not the event or the circumstance. It's a great, great quote. So if you and I were to be vulnerably open to learn more about Penina, who in this text is weaponizing pain, if we wanted to empathize with her, we'd find out pretty quickly that she's not an unlovable or unlikable character. Right, scripture tells us that the husband Penina and Hannah share, because yes, they're married to the same man, not a good idea. Her husband loves Hannah more. She is the lesser loved wife, scripture tells us. That is some deep, unresolved, and ongoing pain. Possibly even unexplored pain. I don't know if Penina ever sat down and said, hey, can we explore our family dynamic? Because I feel like I'm lesser loved. No, instead, Penina just simply was the rival. That's the scripture text tells us again and again, the rival. Her rival was provoking her. And so this shows the way they were relating to each other. Penina chose to deal with her own pain by mocking and weaponizing. She chose to deal with Hannah's pain by turning that pain against her. We don't have to do that. Instead of cooking this, we can cook that. <laughs> instead of trying this, we can try that. Instead of weaponizing pain, you and I can instead be vulnerably open to learn more. Number two in your notes. When faced with your pain, your own or someone else's, instead of questioning pain, try listening to understand. Instead of questioning pain, try listening to understand. Another person we see in this text and their response to pain is Hannah's husband, Elkanah. Now, Elkanah, he responded with a lot of love. He didn't weaponize pain, but instead he, he responded with a lot of questions, and I think I have them up on the screen. In verse 8, you know, Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So he's, he's a real well-meaning guy, right? Yet his response to pain is still rather unhelpful, right? He has this whole flood of questions. And instead of drawing Hannah out, they're more likely to shut her down. You might notice in the text that she gives no response to this. It does not draw her out. This flood instead shuts her up. One year after I attended seminary, um, I, I worked at St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank as a chaplain resident. And this meant being in the hospital for 40 hours a week, and, and then also being on call in the evenings and on weekends for emergency and crisis situations, as well as taking clinical pastoral education, they call it CPE classes each week, basically chaplaincy classes. And I learned pretty quickly when I talked with people that sometimes my anxiety with certain kinds of pain or certain stories people would tell, my anxiety would lead me to, like Alcana, just ask too many questions at once. So this would pretty much shut people down. It would drum them out rather than draw them out. So for me, listening to understand means asking less questions 
and listening more. What does listening to understand look like for you? I remember 11 years ago in the fall, and we're entering the fall, remember when our son Vincent relapsed in his cancer journey? We had some really well-meaning, loving people in our community, but they just didn't understand why we were grieving the way we were. They said, he's still alive now. Why are you so sad? He looks great. Why are you talking about him dying? They were so well-meaning, but their questioning of our pain made us feel even more alone. Last year, when a spate of public killings of black men by police were splashed over national news, I had many friends who talked about their stories of being pulled over while black, and they lamented how afraid they were that they would die that way. Others questioned them, what were you wearing when you were pulled over? How did you react? What were you driving? Why are you so afraid? This type of questioning looks innocent. I'm just asking questions. But oftentimes, it's not listening to understand. Friends, as you and I regroup on the beach from the shipwreck of normal, whose pain might God be inviting you to hear? Not just question, but listen to understand. That brings us to number three in our notes. When faced with pain, your own or someone else's, instead of dismissing pain, try engaging to go deeper. Number three in your notes. Instead of dismissing pain, try engaging to go deeper. So one year, they are once again at the tabernacle. The whole family is there. They are going through the same cycle as usual. They have their meal, which isn't quite so celebratory, and Hannah cannot stand it anymore. Right? She, she is so distraught. She just goes to a place of prayer to pour her heart out to the Lord. She's so distressed. She can't eat. She's sobbing, but she's trying to hold it in to not make a scene. And as she's praying, she can't even get the words out. She's just mouthing them to the Lord. Now, can you picture her? Chances are you might have even felt like that sometime. If you're an outsider looking in, Perhaps Eli's response to her is a little bit more understandable because to Eli, she probably looked unstable or unwell, maybe a little bit incoherent. Now, Eli, he's the high priest at Shiloh, and he was on duty that night. And as he sees her in distress, he makes some assumptions about her and her character, and he moves to dismiss her. How long will you stay drunk, he says. Put away your wine. Now, interestingly, this says more about Eli than it does about Hannah. You see, Eli's sons, they're regularly doing this. Scripture tells us they are regularly getting drunk at the tabernacle. So Eli's speaking about what he knows, and he's assuming that about her, assuming he knows her state of mind. And friends, when we are dismissive, we often make assumptions about the other person too. Assumptions about their character, assumptions about their decisions, their state of mind. And oftentimes this says more about us than it does about the person in question. For example, last Sunday, I was running some errands in Waipahu. I was picking up something for a friend after church. And we realized that we were by the restaurant Golden Coin. It was actually towards the end of the day. So it was getting a little dark out. We were able to get there right before it closes. And I'm so excited because Golden Coin serves Filipino food. And having grown up in the Philippines, it's just like a taste of home. So Dan and the boys, they stay in the car. And I, I run in to go get some takeout. And as I walk um, 
Through the parking lot towards the entrance, I saw a very dirty man just covered in bandages and rags. I mean, so so dirty and so covered in rags that he looked like he just stepped, stepped from the pages of the Bible or something. And he was sitting to the side of the building, and I'm so embarrassed to say this. Oh, but as I walked up, I thought to myself, I hope he's not here when I get back. Because I didn't have anything to give him then. But I knew that after I went in to get food, I would have something to share. I did not want to engage this man. I wanted to dismiss him. He looked unstable to me, unwell. I was concerned that maybe he would grab me or harm me. And that had happened to me before when I was a child growing up. But when I came out of Golden Coin, he was still there. And my heart sank. Because, you know, I'm a good Christian. And I thought to myself, Rebecca, you know the right thing to do. Don't be like the religious person in the story of the Good Samaritan. But even as I'm thinking this to myself, my feet aren't getting the memo. Because my feet are taking me away from this man. Even as my brain is saying, don't be like that person. <laughs> but thankfully, God gave me a chance to engage rather than dismiss. Because as, as my feet were taking me away, the man called out to me. And as I turned and looked at him, I looked in his eyes and I saw that I had nothing to fear from him. I asked him what he'd like to eat and I unwrapped some of our food so I could share it. And as I handed him his banana cue, this is barbecued, cooking, cooked banana, it's amazing, our, our hands touched. And I told him I would be praying for him. He thanked me and he blessed me back. It was a sacred moment. It wasn't much, but it's a start. Friends, wherever you are, wherever your tendencies are to dismiss, I just want to encourage you to engage, engage to go deeper. The good news of Jesus and the way of Jesus is proclaimed when we move beyond our assumptions, when we don't dismiss pain, but we engage it. Hannah, she courageously and faithfully bears her pain to God and to Eli. And even though Eli initially makes assumptions to dismiss her, I have to say he moves beyond that. He continues to engage with her to go deeper. And in the story, he's the only one who's able to hear her request to God. And as he bears witness to her suffering, Hannah's experience is transformed. She walks away and is able to eat. Her face is no longer downcast. Friends, maybe you need to be seen today. Perhaps you have felt dismissed or not listened well to or not understood. The good news is that God is here to see you. God wants to engage deeper with you. God wants to meet you in your place of pain. And we want to bear witness and come alongside you as well. Now, to some of you, as I close listening to this message, it might be very clear to you that growing, you know, um, healthy and good responses to pain is part of, of our growing discipleship to Jesus. And others of you might wonder, you know, what's the connection between this and the good news? You know, why talk about healthy responses to pain? What's the connection to the gospel? And um, I was thinking about all of that this past week, um, which was the anniversary, the 25th anniversary of Henry Nouwen's passing. And Henry Nouwen was a, a man who was very much in touch with his pain. He wrestled with loneliness and depression and his sexual identity. 
he was a priest and esteemed professor and he left Yale and Harvard to serve the poor and those with disabilities. He was a wounded healer, always seeking for God. And this is what he says about God. He says right here, the knowledge of Jesus' heart is a knowledge of God's heart. And when we live in the world with that knowledge, we cannot do other than bring healing, reconciliation, new life, and hope wherever we go. Let's typo there. Just say the knowledge of Jesus' heart is a knowledge of God's heart. You see, friends, as we meditate on Jesus in Scripture, as we read the New Testament, as we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus is vulnerably open to learning more as he sits with people's pain. Jesus listens to understand. Jesus doesn't dismiss pain, but engages to go deeper, always with a heart for transformation, for turning people lovingly away from the sin that harms them, from other people's sin that harms them, and towards what will bring new life. Jesus incarnates God's healing and mending ministry in the world. Because ever since the very beginning, God has been working to mend what the enemy working around us has broken and taken away. God's saving and reconciling work, ultimately, is healing work. It's what God does. It's who God is. So friends, as you and I wash up on the beach from our shipwreck of normal, we are going to be faced with pain, our own pain and other people's pain. Among the questions we've been meaning to ask each other, let's let one of them be, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? As we listen to understand, to learn more, to engage, to be vulnerably open as we join God in God's healing work. Let's pray. God, thank you that no, no pain is too big, too complex, too irretrievably gone for you to be present, for you to work your mending. I thank you that you are here with us in all the changes, the stages, and the crises of life and beyond. You are here as the vulnerable and empathetic one who listens to understand, who doesn't dismiss us, who wants to listen to learn more. We pray that you will help us to pick up some of those virtues and be more like you, to practice empathy, practice vulnerability, practice listening well, knowing that as we do, we are leaning into your very heart and participating in your mission to reconcile and heal the world. We ask that you speak to us, speak through us, and come into our lives with even greater vibrancy and wholeness. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.